Picture this. Remember that mold you used to have between your shower tiles? Perhaps you were partly to blame, so you kept forgetting to put the ventilation fan on. Or perhaps the odds were stacked against you. It was an old bathroom, one with cracked tiles, and old grouting with plenty of gaps between which the mold could grow. Regardless, grow it did, and the trickier it became to just wipe away. Eventually, you may have needed to resort to using some chemical anti-mold sprays, or, in the extreme, someone may have had to remove and replace the moldy shower tiles entirely. Well, on our show, those tiles are our heart valves, and this vexing mold is a bacterial vegetation. Today, our patient has infective endocarditis, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled Heart of the Infection and is all about infective endocarditis. Okay, time for our minute physiology. Just a quick reminder that we post a cheat sheet for download with every episode on our website with further details and resources. You can find it at www.theinternetwork.com. Infective endocarditis refers to inflammation of the innermost lining of the heart, the endocardium. In the vast majority of cases, this inflammation arises from bacteria circulating in the bloodstream, termed bacteremia. This bacteremia, in turn, is often caused by non-sterile injection of street drugs, hematological spread from dental infections, indwelling intravenous catheters, or from transient bacteria from normal flora. The heart valves are particular favorite spots for bacteria to colonize, especially prosthetic heart valves or valves with prior microscopic damage, as they are easier to stick to. They can, however, stick to previously healthy heart valves as well. Once a certain number of bacteria manage to settle on a heart valve, they become increasingly difficult to dislodge as they form adhesive biofilm, gluing themselves together and to the valve underneath. Once the ball of bacteria is attached, it matures with the help of thrombin deposition and further bacterial proliferation. This ball of bacteria is termed a vegetation and can cause all sorts of issues, such as preventing the valve from closing properly, dislodging and traveling via the bloodstream to other sites, causing tissue infarction, as well as triggering antigen-immune reactions. While a wide variety of organisms can cause endocarditis, those most commonly isolated are Staphylococcus aureus, Streptococcus viridans, Streptococcus bovis, and Enterococcus. If a blood culture is ever positive for one of these organisms in your patient, you should obtain an echocardiogram to rule out endocarditis. Alright, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. Rarely an obvious diagnosis, infective endocarditis can present in a variety of manners. Described by William Osler in 1885, the classic presentation of endocarditis includes fever with a new heart murmur due to regurgitant flow through a leaky heart valve. Particular suspicion for infective endocarditis should be raised when evaluating patients with a recent history of injection drug use or those with prior prosthetic heart valves who present with new fever and systemic symptoms. Patients may complain of a wide variety of nonspecific systemic symptoms, particularly in cases of subacute infective endocarditis, such as anorexia, weight loss, headache, myalgias, arthralgias, night sweats, abdominal pain, and chest pain. Your history should aim to help you understand the portal of entry of the infection and to elucidate any complications of endocarditis. Ask about and examine for any indwelling lines, recent dental instrumentation, skin wounds or cellulitis, and any history or signs of intravenous drug use, including track marks or abscesses. 
Patients may also present with complications of endocarditis, such as with symptomatic heart failure, pain and sepsis from infectious spread to the spine or joints, or new neurological features due to intracerebral bleeding or cerebral embolus. In addition, a vegetation may embolize to other organs, such as the spleen or kidneys, causing pain and organ dysfunction. In the increasing proportion of patients with right heart endocarditis from injection drug use, septic pulmonary emboli to the lungs may occur, causing shortness of breath and at times pleuritic chest pain. A whole host of peripheral stigmata of disease may be seen on exam, though often more with late presentations of slowly progressive disease, known as subacute bacterial endocarditis. These features include immunologic phenomena such as Osler nodes, described in 1909 by Osler as tender, violaceous nodules on the pads of the fingers and toes, or Roth spots, which are hemorrhagic lesions with pale centers on fundoscopic exam. You may also see vascular phenomena such as Janeway lesions, which are non-tender macules on the palms and soles, or conjunctival hemorrhages. Other signs in the hand can include splinter hemorrhages, which are vertical black marks originating from the proximal nail bed, and finger clubbing. Alright, after the initial bedside assessment, we can start working up our patient. As with any unwell patient with a septic picture, early blood cultures are vital. At least three sets of blood cultures should be drawn from different, fresh venipuncture sites separated by 15 minutes prior to administration of any empiric antibiotics where possible. At the time of drawing initial blood cultures, routine lab tests should also be drawn, including a CBC, renal function, and lactate. Although important in determining severity of infection, routine lab tests often simply reveal nonspecific features of systemic inflammation and infection, with no particular lab test being specific for infective endocarditis. Additional tests which are often ordered in the initial workup of a patient with presumed infective endocarditis include ECGs, chest x-ray, and CT or MRI imaging of potential sites affected by embolic or hematologic spread. ECGs may reveal heart block, which in the setting of infective endocarditis may be a clue to paravalvular extension of the vegetation. Chest x-rays can be helpful for demonstrating findings in keeping with septic emboli to the lung and radiographic features of heart failure due to valve dysfunction. Importantly, do not forget to take this opportunity to test for concurrent infections, specifically HIV and hepatitis C, particularly if the patient has a history of intravenous drug use. The ultimate test for demonstrating the presence of a vegetation is a transthoracic echocardiogram. In cases where a transthoracic echo does not reveal a vegetation, but there remains a strong clinical suspicion, a transesophageal echo may be requested, as this offers greater sensitivity, with the trade-off of being more invasive to the patient. Echo findings can then be integrated with blood culture results and clinical findings in determining the likelihood of endocarditis. These are the major criteria of a widely accepted diagnostic framework, the modified Dukes criteria. This framework was first outlined by the Duke Endocarditis Service in 1994, was revised in 2000, and is comprised of a series of major and minor criteria used by clinicians to diagnose infective endocarditis. For completion's sake, the minor criteria of the modified Dukes criteria include a temperature greater than 38 degrees centigrade, a strongly predisposing risk factor such as a prosthetic valve or history of intravenous drug use, vascular phenomena or immunologic phenomena as we mentioned before, or a positive blood culture that doesn't quite fit major criteria. You can find further information on this framework with our infographic online. Alright, now let's move on to treatment. When approaching a patient with possible infective endocarditis, an initial assessment of hemodynamic stability is key, 
as many of these patients can be seriously unwell on initial presentation to hospital. Indeed, while some patients present with subacute endocarditis that can present in a slowly progressive and indolent manner, others can become acutely unwell in a very short time span. Therefore, take early note of the patient's vital signs, oxygen requirements, fluid status, and level of consciousness. As with any potentially unstable patient, early, adequate IV access is key. Use your ABCs and consider a further monitored setting, such as intensive care unit, if they're unstable. And always remember to call someone more senior than you who can help you if there's a need for it. As infective endocarditis is a bacterial infection, you can imagine that antibiotics are required for treatment. While various resources will cite differing initial antibiotic choices, your choice should be guided by the patient's prior history, local resistance patterns, severity of presentation, MRSA colonization status, and whether or not the patient has a prosthetic valve. We typically use IV cefazolin in our stable patients and add vancomycin if they are MRSA colonized or have a high-risk history, such as in individuals with a history of IV drug use. Rifampin is often also used as adjunctive therapy for those with suspected infected prosthetic valves. If your patient is septic and unstable, you should begin with broader-spectrum antibiotics, such as ceftriaxone and vancomycin, particularly if other sources of sepsis are being considered. The duration of antibiotic therapy varies based on multiple factors, but in general is about six weeks. Decisions should be made on an individual patient basis, though, in consultation with your local infectious diseases specialist. Following a period of appropriate antibiotic therapy, in certain cases, your patient may warrant cardiac surgery to replace the infective valve. This may be indicated with complications of the infection, such as valvular dysfunction causing heart failure, paravalvular extension, fistula, heart block as seen on an ECG, multidrug-resistant organisms or fungal infections, abscess, persistent bacteremia, multiple embolic events despite appropriate therapy, or large, mobile vegetations, particularly those greater than one centimeter on the aortic or mitral valve. In patients who have experienced embolic complications in other organ systems, involve other services early to help with their management. For example, if they have intracranial emboli with hemorrhage, you should consult the neurosurgeons and neurologists for their input. In patients with neurologic deficits, spinal imaging should be obtained whenever attainable, and neurosurgical consultation requested if there is evidence of spinal seating. While multidisciplinary care is important to all patients, having a strong team becomes critical in patients who developed endocarditis as a result of IV drug use. In the case of recent or ongoing substance misuse, it is important to ensure your patient is given the best possible chance of recovery by involving local addiction services and social workers. In particular, consideration should be given to medications which can help minimize the likelihood of opioid withdrawal and can prevent relapse if there has been a period of abstinence while admitted to hospital. Social workers and clinical psychologists can help in addressing the often complex psychosocial determinants of health underlying the presentation with endocarditis. Alright, time for our Medicine Minute. The guidelines for endocarditis prophylaxis have changed over the years. The guidelines we're using today come from the American Heart Association and have been widely adapted by the Canadian Cardiovascular Society and Canadian Dental Association. So, who needs endocarditis prophylaxis? When you think about endocarditis prophylaxis, you want to think about your procedure and your population. Today we're going to talk about prophylaxis prior to dental procedures, as this is a common scenario we encounter. Dental procedures that involve manipulation of gingival tissues or perforation of oral mucosa are higher risk for the following populations. Patients with prosthetic cardiac valves, a prior history of endocarditis, 
and post-cardiac transplant with valvular disease. Patients with certain cyanotic congenital heart disease may also require antibiotic prophylaxis, and the full guidelines will be posted on our website. This is a big change from prior guidelines, where patients with mitral valve prolapse, rheumatic heart disease, bicuspid valve disease, calcified aortic stenosis, and some congenital heart conditions all required antibiotic prophylaxis. Antibiotic choices include oral amoxicillin, IV ampicillin, or cefazolin. If your patient is allergic to penicillin, clindamycin or azithromycin are also options. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Heart of the Infection. Again, there's a cheat sheet on our website that you can download for further reference and reading materials. This episode was written by Dr. Liam Finley, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Zane Chagla, infectious disease specialist, and Dr. Leslie Martin, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Leia Karianopoulos. The Internet Works series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leia Karianopoulos and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brant Vegas. Music by Lakshman Vasanthamoan. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.